So when we pray, Thy kingdom come, Thy will be done. Beloved, we are inviting a clash of kingdoms and a clash of wills. It's part of the cost of seeing heaven come down, but there's no contest. One with God is a majority. My heart is steadfast, O oh God, my heart is steadfast. Psalm 57, 7. A supernatural lifestyle is not primarily about signs and wonders. It's about developing the mind of the Lord, speaking out the words of the Lord, and the signs and wonders will follow. It's relational, partnership, bridal love. Mark 16:20, And they went out and preached everywhere while the Lord worked with them and confirmed the word by the signs follow, that followed. We must concentrate our efforts on lifestyle, not on event. If we're event-driven, we go from one high to another, one adrenaline rush to another, and the place in between will be a low place of depression, fatigue and despondency. Every adrenaline high is followed by an adrenaline low. So what we're seeking to achieve is lifestyle. Not going to church, not going to an event, lifestyle. An ongoing work of peace, rest and contentment in God. This is what Jesus was teaching his disciples when they asked him how to pray. Live like this boys and everything you need will come to you. This is key for you. Live like this. Okay. Matthew 6.33 Amplified But seek, aim at and strive after, first of all his kingdom and his righteousness, his way of doing and being right. Then all these things taken together will be given you besides. And lifestyle carries with it certain disciplines. If I'm to get anything done in the morning, the first thing I have to do is get out of bed, pretty obvious, but sometimes that's an effort. Just a few minutes more, the seduction of the juve, as a friend of mine used to say. Time wasted is time lost. We must begin to redeem the time for the days we are living in are truly evil. So we must put into place certain spiritual disciplines. To live in God each day takes a constant recognition of who he is and what he's done in Christ and what he's doing now by his Holy Spirit. We must learn to discern what he's doing in us and what he's doing through us. You need to know so that you can cooperate with what he's doing in us. This causes us to become God conscious. We deliberately turn our minds to thinking about that one thing, the one person in the whole of the universe who is worth taking time to think about. This recognition brings us revelation. It will promote in us cooperation which we so need as we find ourselves yielding to the present moment in God. He's not I will be but I am, it's present tense. It's essential therefore that we begin and end the day in the presence of the Lord. We begin the day by dwelling on the nature of God. He's the God of love. Everything he does in our life is only motivated by love. He knows everything about us and he intentionally chooses to set his love on us. So it's not difficult to enter his courts with thanksgiving. We enter through what we know of him, his unchanging nature, his grace, his mercy, and we give thanks. 
Don't tell me you don't have time in the morning. You have time to bath or shower or shave or whatever. While you're doing those things, your mind can be occupied with him, not with what you're about to do. You've got 15, 20 minutes, half an hour, however long it takes to get you ready, that can be his, even though you're bodily doing something else. Your mind, your heart is turned towards him. We all have the same amount of hours and minutes in the day. You have time. It's what you choose to do with your time that is key. From the beginning, God has been looking for a people who will be totally and completely wholehearted in their love for him and in their relationship with him and in their love and relationships with his people. John 6.30 So they said to him, What then do you do for a sign so that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? These people were asking Jesus for a sign because they didn't believe who he was. John six forty two, forty three and fifty two. They were saying, Isn't this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does he now say, I have come down out of heaven? Jesus answered and said to them, Don't grumble amongst yourselves. Then the Jews began to argue with one another, saying, How can this man give us his flesh to eat? So John six forty three, some people are grumbling about him and his words. He was only Joseph's son, so why should they listen to him? And they went on to argue. This is a critical point in Jesus' earthly ministry because many withdrew from him at this point and wouldn't walk with him anymore. He lost a lot of his followers. Believers, followers, disciples, which will you be? John six sixty six and 67 As a result of this, many of his disciples withdrew and were not walking with him anymore. So Jesus said to the twelve, You don't want to go away also, do you? Jesus asked them, Do you want to go as well? The inner circle, the twelve, most close to him, their answer, Where would we go? He's saying, Guys, what are you going to do? comes a time when he asks all of us that. What are you going to do? You're at a pivotal point. What are you going to choose? The church is at a pivotal point. church is made up of members, individuals. What are you going to choose? What are you going to do? Who are you going to choose? Which way are you going to go? Are you going to be a crowd follower or a cloud follower? You choose. John six sixty eight. Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. Speaking for all of them, he was saying, This is a hard one, Jesus. This is difficult for us. If there was an alternative, a way out, we might take it, Peter says. But we know there isn't one. You've captivated our hearts. We're ruined. There's nowhere else to turn. We've spent three and a half years with you and we're stuck with you. And we're stuck with this. We have to go forward with you. There comes a time in your Christian walk where you can't go back. You're at a crossroads. This is a pivotal moment. You can't go back because he's ruined you for anything else. And you can't stay here because you'll be frustrated with where you are. You can't stay there. You'll be bored rotten. 
The only avenue open to you is going down that unknown road, even if it kills you, which it feels right now like it will. We used to say you're on the horns of a dilemma. So like Peter, you say, where else would we go? A captivated heart is the very essence of spirituality and a life lived before God. Jesus, the lover of our soul, wants to enthrall his beloved. For some of us, it's like we've uh, come so far, but we haven't come far enough. And for many of us, God may be saying, well, what are you going to do then? Are you going to come all the way? Will you allow me to captivate your heart? Will you allow me to allure you into the wilderness and speak kindly to you? If you stay here, this is going to kill you, because I've arranged for it to kill you. Oh, Lord, where else can we go? God say, listen, listen. This isn't going to work for you unless you do this. If you want to see heaven come down, you have to make some choices and follow them through. Comes a time for all of us when we have to put our hands up and say, being a Christian isn't going to work for me unless I give it everything. Unless, of course, as Graham Cook would say, you're keen to die of terminal boredom. Another problem is that some of us make those choices in a moment of emotion but we do not continue with the follow through and we never move even though we've professed we want to do it. When push comes to shove it's the follow through. I wonder when Peter gave Jesus that answer it was the answer that Jesus really wanted. Knowing him, he probably appreciated Peter's honesty and the fact that it was genuine because Peter gave the best he had at that moment. It's okay, give him the best you've got, but follow through, beloved. Don't give it on Sunday and forget it on Monday. The thing is that until you know what God is like, it is very hard to walk with him. Until you recognize something of the nature of God, and that which has been head learning is translated into your heart until you gain your own personal testimony of what God is really, really like. It can be very difficult walking with him. And those who are walking with him and are determined to follow hard after him are difficult to be with. A radical person is difficult to live with. Everything in their lives are subordinated to one thing. Luke 10.42 But only one thing is necessary for Mary has chosen the good part which shall not be taken away from her. When your heart has been captivated by him you can't look at anything else gazing on the crucified. One thing Mary has chosen the better. Comes crunch time when God says, this is my way and you need to do what I'm doing. Real Christianity has at its heart the whole issue of both abandonment and alignment. 
the rich young ruler couldn't abandon his money. Pilate couldn't abandon his power. Judas couldn't abandon his greed or his ambition. We either see Jesus as he really, really is or we no longer follow him as we should. And when we see him, sometimes he frightens us. Jesus was considered to be too radical and too bizarre and people had to make a strong commitment to push ahead with the kind of lifestyle he was demanding. So what is it that you can't abandon for Jesus' sake? Is it your money, your possessions, your home, your family? Is it your posi position in the church or your ministry or your lifestyle, your comfort, your routine, your career, your security? Maybe it's none of those. Maybe it's just that you are just straightforward afraid of making a mistake. What is it you can't abandon to Jesus? Again, is he waiting for your response? Is he waiting for you to say, Father, I'm just so scared of making a mistake, but I step out anyway. Matthew 10, 5-42, the message. Jesus sent his twelve harvest hands out with this charge. Don't begin by travelling to some far-off place to convert unbelievers, and don't try to be dramatic by tackling some public enemy. Go to the lost, confused people right here in the neighbourhood. Tell them that the kingdom's here. Bring health to the sick, raise the dead. Touch the untouchables, kick out the demons. You've been treated generously, so live generously. Don't think you have to put on a fundraising campaign before you start. You don't need a lot of equipment. You are the equipment. And all you need to keep that going is three meals a day. Travel light. When you enter a town or village, don't insist on staying in a luxury inn. Get a modest place with some modest people and be content there till you leave. When you knock on a door, be courteous in your greeting. If they welcome you, be gentle in your conversation. If they don't welcome you, quietly withdraw. Don't make a scene. Shrug your shoulders and be on your way. You can be sure that on Judgment Day they'll be mighty sorry, but that's no concern of yours now. Stay alert. This is hazardous work I'm assigning you. You're going to be like sheep running through a wolf pack, so don't call attention to yourselves. Be as cunning as a snake, inoffensive as a dove. Don't be naive. Some people will impugn your motives. Others will smear your reputation just because you believe in me. Don't be upset when they haul you before the civil authorities. Without knowing it, they've done you and me a favour, given you a platform for preaching the kingdom news. And don't worry about what you'll say or how you'll say it. The right words will be there. The spirit of your father will supply the words. When people realise it's the living God you're presenting and not some idol that makes them feel good, they're going to turn on you, even people in your own family. There's a great irony here, proclaiming so much love, experiencing so much hate, but don't quit, don't cave in. It's all worth, well worth it in the end. It's not success you're after in such times, but survival. Be survivors. Before you've run out of options, the Son of Man will have arrived. A student doesn't get a better desk than her teachers. A labourer doesn't make more money than his boss. Be content, pleased even, when you, my students, my harvest hands, get the same treatment I get. 
If they call me master, dung face, what can the workers expect? Don't be intimidated. Eventually everything's going to be out in the open and everyone will know how things really are. So don't hesitate to go public now. Don't be bluffed into silence by the threat of bullies. There's nothing they can do to your soul, your core being. Save your fear for God, who holds your entire life, body and soul, in his hands. What's the price of a pet canary? Some loose change, right? And God cares what happens to it even more than you do. He pays even greater attention to you, down to the last detail, even numbering the hairs on your head. So don't be intimidated by all this bully talk. You're worth more than a million canaries. Stand up for me against the world opinion and I'll stand up for you before my Father in Heaven. If you turn tail and run, do you think I'll cover for you? Don't think I've come to make life cosy. I've come to cut, make a sharp knife cut between son and father, daughter and mother, bride and mother-in-law. Cut through those cosy domestic arrangements and free you for God. Well-meaning family members can be your worst enemies. If you prefer father or mother over me, you don't deserve me. If you prefer son or daughter over me, you don't deserve me. If you don't go all the way with me through thick and thin, you don't deserve me. If your first concern is to look after yourself, you'll never find yourself. But if you forget about yourself and look to me, you'll find both yourself and me. We're intimately linked in this harvest work. Anyone who accepts what you do accepts me, the one who sent you. And anyone who accepts what I do accepts my Father, who sent me. Accepting a messenger of God is as good as being God's messenger. Accepting someone's help is as good as giving someone help. This is a large work I've called you into, but don't be overwhelmed by it. It's best to start small. Give a cool cup of water to someone who's thirsty, for instance. The smallest act of giving or receiving makes you a true apprentice. You won't lose out on a thing. He's telling his disciples what a hard road it was going to be. But you won't lose out on a thing. Save your fear for God. In other words, get your fear in the right place. Brilliant piece of advice. Following Jesus is about lifestyle trust, not situational trust. Trusting the person of God himself, Lord, where else shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. Jesus said, I must be about my father's business. So should we. Because it is as he is in this world, so are we. Some of us are locked into ministry and blessing and being touched by the Lord. Don't get me wrong, I love all that. I think it's brilliant. But there's a hard road in front of us. And you have to have a strong stomach to follow Jesus in the places where he wants you to go. Jesus said, take no money, take no extra clothes with you and travel light. And he was setting an interesting precedent. I send you out as lambs amongst wolves. We, we think when we've got 10 years of warfare training and you've got some hair on your neck growing and a little bit of mane, we'll send you out as a lion. He said, no, 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 I'm sending you out as lambs amongst wolves. A lamb is a completely weak and defenseless animal. Up against a wolf, it should have no chance. But even a lamb with God has a chance. 
He said people will be against you and you'll probably get beaten up in the church. You'll get betrayed by people close to you. You'll be hated because of my name. Nothing you own is yours. Everything belongs to me. Still want to come? What does this mean, beloved? It means that God is looking for a quiet abandonment to following Jesus in the most difficult circumstances, regardless of the outcome or consequences, and without the need for any recognition or credit. It's a hard road. Matthew eight nineteen to 20 Then a scribe came to him and said, Teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. Jesus said to him, Foxes have holes, birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Still want to follow? There are things that maybe we have to do with our lives that nobody else can do. There are things, there are callings on you. This isn't a dress rehearsal you're on, this is it. You get one chance at the thing, don't blow it. Some of us have been marking time. God is looking for a people to join the parade of heroes in Hebrews 11. People who will do something substantial with their lives that will have eternal value. Religious people want a nice tame Jesus, baby Jesus, forever in the manger. That's why they love the Christmas season. They love to keep him where he's manageable for them. They don't recognize Jesus as he truly is. The one who is outrageous and unpredictable and who is returning as the warrior king. Now that man is a challenge. The Pharisees before them failed to recognize the most immense visitation in the history of the earth. What was right under their nose, they couldn't see it. After the whole outpouring of Pentecost and the church turning the world upside down. If you look in the final chapter of the book of Acts, the last words are, your heart has become dull. When the angels proclaimed the coming of the Messiah, the Christ, they trumpeted, peace on earth, goodwill to all men on whom his favour rests. Luke 2.14 This is the biggest prophetic statement ever made apart from Genesis 3.15 And I will put enmity between thee and the woman, and between thy seed and her seed. It shall bruise thy head, and thou shalt bruise his heel. Sin is dealt with, man is reconciled to God, this is the good news. 1 Corinthians 5.19, New American Standard God was in Christ, reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and he has committed to us the word of reconciliation. But our form of Christianity is no longer life-changing, it's merely life-enhancing. And Jesus doesn't change people into radicals anymore, he changes them into nice people. And the church has become dull, predictable, boring, monotonous and powerless. It was the unnice behaviour of first century Christians that turned the world upside down. These people were anti-institutional. They smashed every category known to man. They preached a life-threatening gospel. They were so dangerous they had to be killed to shut them up. Dangerous, radical Christians have a mark on them. They exhibit ruined lives and captivated hearts. 
Look around the church and you see people who've lost their sparkle and the joy of the presence of Jesus. They're living boring, dull, monotonous lives, just the same as the unbelievers outside, if not worse. They are just as worried, just as concerned, just as anxious. And on top of that, they've added religion. Sin is not just about immorality and selfishness. Sin is living. Sin means, you know, missing the mark. It's not all about just sexual stuff or whatever. It's missing the mark of God's high calling, his high aim for us. It's living uninteresting, colourless, unexciting, stale and unimaginative lives. The greatest enemy of Christianity may quite possibly be people who say they believe in Jesus, but who no longer are astonished or amazed by him and lack a demonstration of his power in their lives and whose lives no longer touch others around them. They've become institutionalized. So what are we doing with our lives? How much of what we do with earth is earthed in reality and how much of what we are doing is earthed in pretentious nonsense? Who are we really affecting with our lives? When was the last time you spoke to someone about Jesus? When was the last time you said someone led someone to him? When was the last time you cast out a demon, prayed for someone, saw someone healed? God's looking for a people who are going to be abandoned in these days, who are willing to go out with a bang, not a whimper. Now here's another thought. Half the world doesn't know where the next meal's coming from and we throw food out. God has given us so much and all we have done is accumulate. We've never given it away. Shame on us for the way we live. Now, hear me on this. I'm not saying you shouldn't have nice things. It's just that more and more I do get troubled about Christians' lifestyle. Their goals, aims, aspirations are exactly the same as the world three up, three down, two cars, three kids, they do not seek first the kingdom. Nice fat pension and nor do they have any intention of doing so. They recite the Lord's Prayer that is, but that's as far as it goes. Beloved, we're no longer living kingdom lives. We're resting in the knowledge we have eternal security and we're coasting home, having the best we think of both worlds. Beloved, we've been duped by the father of lies. He knows that if the church should rise from her slumber, his days would be well and truly numbered. Whilst preparing this, um, I received something from the ministry of Francis Frangipan and it seemed appropriate for our study this month. It just says the same thing and it's headed up when your eye is single. From the moment Christ enters within us, we are holy, set apart unto God. This kind of holiness is the same sanctification that made the utensils in the temple holy. Holy because they were used in service to the Lord. They had no virtue in themselves. The material substance didn't change. 
Christianity in general is holy in that sense. But the holiness we're seeking is the fulfilment of having been set apart. We're seeking a holiness that mirrors through us the presence of God in heaven. We're seeking both his nature and his quality of life. Since true holiness produces in us the actual life of the Holy Spirit, we must be sure we know who the Holy Spirit is. The Spirit of God is love, not religion. God is life, not rituals. The Holy Spirit does more in us than simply enable us to speak in tongues or witness. The Holy Spirit leads us into the presence of Jesus. Herein is our holiness received in our union and fellowship with Jesus Christ. Again, the holiness we're seeking is not a legislative or legalistic set of rules, it's Christ's very own life. The Holy Spirit works in us not merely a new desire to love, but he imparts to us Christ's very own love. We develop more than just a general faith in Jesus. We actually begin believing like Jesus with his quality of faith. It is God in us that makes us holy. Let it stagger us. Let it rock us off our comfortable little perches until with great trembling and great joy, with deep worship and holy fear, we approach the divine reality who has for his own will and purpose called us to himself. Do you not know that you are a temple of God and that the Holy Spirit dwells in you? 1 Corinthians 3.16 the Spirit of God dwells in us. In this light, let us ask ourselves again the age-old question, what is man? We know how we appear to other men, but if God truly is within us, how do we appear to angels or devils? What light marks us out in the spirit world? What illumination surrounds us? What glory declares to the invisible realm? Behold and beware, here walks a child of God. Think of it, the spirit of the creator who purposed in the beginning to make man in his image is in you now. Holiness is a body full of light. There are limitations. There are conditions. You cannot serve two masters. You cannot serve light and darkness, sin and righteousness, self and God. Light is within you but also is darkness. Our world is a world in darkness. Our ancestors were sons of darkness. Our carnal minds yet remain theatres of darkness. In a world of choices we must choose light. That's why Jesus taught that we must be single-minded if we will become fully mature sons of light. He said the light of the body is the eye, therefore when thine eye is single thy whole body is also full of light. But when thine eye is evil, thy whole body is also full of darkness. Luke 11.34, King James. If you are focused in your will and heart towards God, your body is full of light and you're giving full expression to the glory of God within you. But if you are double-minded, if you are dwelling in sinful or evil thoughts, your light is proportionately diminished until your very body is full of darkness. Jesus went on to warn, Take heed therefore, that the light which is in thee be not darkness. Luke 11.35 If you do nothing about your salvation, fail to seek God, 
or choose to disobey him, you're in darkness. Do not console yourself with an aimless hope that someday, somehow, you'll get better. Arm yourself with determination. For if the light in you is darkness, how terrible is that darkness? Son of light, you must hate darkness. For darkness is the substance of hell, it's the world without God. But our hope is light, not darkness. Your feet are walking the path of the just, the path which grows brighter and brighter unto the full day. If therefore your whole body is full of light, with no dark part in it, it shall be wholly illumined as when the light lamp illumines you with its rays. Luke 11.36 This verse gives a very clear picture of what holiness looks like in its maturity. Our bodies are radiant with glory, even as a lamp shines at full brightness. What a tremendous hope that we can be so wholly illumined with the presence of God that there is no dark part within us. A garment of light and glory that awaits the spiritually mature, the holy ones of God. A garment similar to what Jesus wore on the Mount of Transfiguration. A splendour not just put on in eternity but one worn here. In the midst of a crooked and perverse generation. Here where we appear as lights in the world. Philippians 2:14 and 15 You were formerly in darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. Ephesians 5:8. Now you are a child of light. These are not merely figures of speech. The glory of God is within and around you. It is a spiritual reality. But what of the darkness that is yet within you? Paul continued, and do not participate with the unfruitful deeds of darkness, but instead even expose them. But all things become visible when they are exposed by the light, for everything that becomes visible is light. Ephesians 5:11 and 13. Do not hide your darkness, expose it. Do not sympathetically make excuses for it. Confess it, hate it, renounce it. For as long as darkness remains in darkness, it rules you. But when you bring darkness out into the light, it becomes light. When you take your secret sins and come boldly to the throne of grace and confess them, he cleanses you from all unrighteousness. 1 John 1 9. If you sin again, repent again and again until the habit of sin is broken within you. Like the prospectors of old, you must stake your claim high in the kingdom of God, being ready to defend your rights to the pure gold of heaven. Revelation 3.18 And as you pitch your tent at the throne of grace, something eternal will begin to glow in you like hot coals on a furnace floor. And as you persist with the Almighty, the sacred fire of His presence will consume the wood, hay and stubble of your former ways. Power such as Jesus had will reside in your inmost being. Angels will stand in awe, for your gold will be refined, your garments light and your life holy. I find it extremely interesting stuff that the prophets are speaking the same word to the church at this time. So when heaven comes down there's a price to pay. Faithfulness, endurance under trials, steadfastness, disciplines, 
but you will live a life less ordinary. A supernatural lifestyle that will mess with the enemy's head. He won't be able to understand why all the lies that he tells you no longer work with you. Everything that he tried on you in the past no longer has power over you. Why? You've chosen the better path. You have, like Mary, chosen the good part which will not be taken away from you. There's something quite awesome here because Martha's choice apparently could be taken away from her. She'd chosen something lesser that could be taken away. You don't have just a functional relationship with God. You don't want that, just a working relationship with Him because that could be removed. This is what is meant in Revelation 2, 1 to 5. To the angel of the church at Ephesus write, the one who holds the seven stars in his right hand, the one who walks among the seven golden lampstands says this, I know your deeds and your toil and your perseverance and you can't tolerate evil men, you put to the test those who call themselves apostles and are not and you found them to be false and you have perseverance and you have endured for my name's sake and you haven't grown weary, but... I have this against you, you've left your first love. Therefore remember from where you've fallen and repent and do the deeds you did at first or else I'm coming to you and will remove your lampstand out of its place unless you repent. This church was commended for their hard work but they'd lost their edge, they'd left their first love. They were operating in diminished intimacy with the Lord and he wasn't impressed with everything they were doing, all their works, in place of that. Our endless activity does not impress him, beloved. He is relational. Repent, he tells them. Think again. Change your mind. Time to return to being captivated by me and nothing else. Jesus says, if you don't change your mind, I'll come and remove your light, your lampstand from its place. I'll remove your church. I'll put out your light. Oh, you might go on meeting together. But Ichabod, the glory has departed, will be written over the door. Please do not think this cannot happen. I belong to a church where Ichabod was written over the door. It took ten years for it to actually be removed but it died the day that God's glory was removed works will never cut it with him you can't make up for lost intimacy by working twice as hard choices you cannot go any further in your Christian walk without making them question are you a worshipper who works or a worker who worships? Your answer will show whether you recognize that your intimate relationship with the Father is far more important than your work for Him. Your work flows out of your intimacy with Him, not the other way round. The enemy, you know, will keep you busy. It's called wearing out the saints and it isn't a virtue. We have two relationships, a business relationship, our prayer life, and an intimate relationship. Your prayer life flows out of your intimate relationship. Sooner or later, 
If your intimate relationship is failing, he'll cause your business relationship to become tricky just to get your attention a little. In order that he can allure you into a place where he can speak comfortably to you, as the King James Version puts it in Hosea 2, 14 and 15. Therefore, behold, I will allure her. Bring her into the wilderness and speak kindly to her. Then I will give her her vineyards from there, and the valley of Achor as a door of hope, and she will sing there as in the days of her youth, as in the day when she came up from the land of Egypt. You're either in that wilderness place, by design, or default. Moses and Elijah were both there by default. Moses murdered a man and ran. Elijah ran from Jezebel. Jesus and John were there by design. God's design. Either way he's with you. He'll allure you if you're there by design in order that he may show you his glory so that you'll be captivated afresh by his beauty. And he'll deal with you if you're there by default. God does nothing outside of relationship and he never leaves you. Spiritual warfare is all about relationship. Staying in the place that God put us, in Christ, and allowing nothing to move us. The goal of the enemy is to get us out of the place he put us in, in Christ. We are dead. Our life is hidden with Christ in God. Our new nature is revealed by the nature of the Christ life within. Our life no longer belongs to us. We're bought at a price. 1 Corinthians 6, 19 and 20. Sin and all its limitations on your life have been dealt with by the cross. Your sin nature has been dealt with and it is ongoingly dealt with as the Holy Spirit promotes the life of Christ within you. Death has dealt with our old nature. Life deals with the sin habits. Living in the Spirit means we won't fulfill the lusts of the fleshly nature. The Lord gives us his life constantly. We're receivers. We were created for love. We were created to worship and glorify him. We are the glorious bride of an incredible king. And the highest form of warfare is worship. He draws you into the wilderness, a place of no distractions, just you and him, and there he makes his face shine on you. He gives you grace and peace, and he looks on you with favour. He looks on you with eyes ablaze. This is both heartwarming and passionate, but his look is contradictory, because his all-consuming love both stirs our hearts and reveals sin. He's something to give you. He wants to make an exchange. His delightfulness for your dross. There is a place in the spirit set aside for you personally, but you won't get there from here. First. First. You will need to decide what you really, really want from your life. Passion or mediocrity. You get to choose, beloved you get to choose. He will not love you any the less because he's fixed his love on you and that will never ever ever change. He fixed his love on you before the foundation of the earth when the Godhead decided they wanted a people for themselves and that the price was worth paying. 
You are worth the price Jesus has paid for you. Yes, the enemy will contest your choices, but heaven will cheer and hell will shake. But how long will you stand with your toe in the water and not plunge into the depths, height, length and width of the love that the Father has got for you? Only you can answer that. God bless you and thank you so much for listening. I do appreciate it. Next month we're going to be looking at Jesus the Man. I'm really looking forward to this. It's the last one in the trilogy. Tracing his earthly life and what he did when heaven came down. <laughs>